Cairo. When people ask me about my time in Cairo, how I would define Cairo, I try to capture it with words. But whenever I think of Cairo, I think of the sounds you hear right now. These sounds became so intrinsic to my life that when I came back to Oklahoma once, I said, wow, I, I hear silence. Like I never heard silence before. I've been gone so long and living in this big city that I forgot what silence sounds like. Like silence has a sound, right? I lived in Cairo for seven years. I went to school there. I worked there. I grew there. My formative years really took place in Cairo in many ways, spiritually, academically, socially. Um, and one of the things that was really, really powerful is on my way every day to work or to school, I had to pass by the largest graveyard I've ever seen in my life. It's called the City of the Dead, right? The Torba or the Qaraf. It's interesting that, you know, we call it from a saintly perspective, the City of the Living, right? Because we believe as Muslims that people are experiencing bliss, the righteous people in their graves. And I always considered that as integral to my religious education as I was headed to school as I was headed to work, passing through the graveyard was a stark reminder that I was going to die. And I've always been uncomfortable confronting my own mortality. I saw one of my best friends get shot and killed uh, when I was 17. I saw his blood spill out over the street. And I remember saying like, can you bring him back? I remember as a child, my puppy being ran over and seeing you know, blood on the street. I remember, you know, growing up and, and experiencing death at least three or four times as a young teenager, unfortunately caught up a little, and, and being really uncomfortable with dealing with my own mortality. It always like shook me. It was like an alarm clock that came out of nowhere. And as I enter now my late 40s, you know, mortality, when you're young, the end of the road seems far away, right? You can't really see the end, at least me. But as I get older, I start to see, see that station, that final resting point, and I get really uncomfortable. I, I, I think of this really incredible tradition in the Muslim community where the angel of death visits prophet Abraham and says to him, I'm here to take your soul. Your friend, God, has commanded me to take your soul because in the Muslim tradition, Ibrahim is called Khalilullah, the friend of God. And Ibrahim responds and says, what kind of friend takes the soul of his friend? I think that's my response to death and mortality. And the angel responds and says, what kind of friend hates to meet his friend? I think what's really challenging about death is that it's unknown. We don't know when it's going to come. We don't know how it's going to come. We hope it comes in a positive way, but there's that era, that area, excuse me, of mystery. The Quran says every soul will taste death. We all know that Re regardless of our religious uh, beliefs, atheist, atheist, we all know that we're going to die. It's one of the certainties. That's why in the Quran, Death is called al-yaqeen, a certain fact.
And for us as Muslims, we believe that our life cycle in totality, which includes before we were created, after creation, death, and then resurrection, 75% of it is already done. The Quran says, how could you disbelieve in God? You are dead. You're brought to life. You're going to die. And then you're going to be brought to life again. Resurrection. Like if I was a betting man, 75% of it is already done. Why do I say all this? Because I know that many of us are hurting. Uh, many of us are shocked. And many of us are confused and angered with the death of Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gigi, as well as the other seven passengers on that helicopter. And we pray and keep their families in our thoughts and prayers, of course. But I think it's important that we take a few lessons because death, and I think this is why I have aversion to thinking about my death because I love living. Uh, I love my wife. I love my children. And I think I was impacted and all of us were impacted in specific ways at the shock of what happened just a few days ago. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that you're not a good person because you're shocked and awed at someone that had importance in your life, whether it be an imaginative importance or whether it was a real importance, right? It's still impacting people. We need to acknowledge people's feelings. But I think there's a few lessons we can draw um, from this, this death and this tragic accident that will center us. And I think that's why sometimes I have a disdain for death outside of loving to look at my daughter's face, loving to play with my children, having great friendships with people. And those are things that are healthy attachments, right? And then of course, I've got my issues, right? I've got things that I might love to do which aren't necessarily that great. Imam al-Ghazali says that life and death is like a cruise ship and the captain as you pull up into port, he says, listen, this island looks really beautiful, but don't get too caught up in it. Don't get too caught up in it because we've got to go somewhere else. And of course, the metaphor here is that the island is this temporary worldly life. And Al-Ghazari says that people are going to be divided into three types when it comes to this island. Those who get on the island and are so enamored by its beauty that they say, wow, there must be nothing else out there. So they get stuck and they miss the boat. The second are those who try to bring some of the island back with them. And some of them, their bags will be too heavy. So they're either going to have to separate themselves from the treasure that they found on the island and trust the captain, which here is like a metaphor for prophets. And the boat, of course, is revelation that takes them to security and safety. Or they're going to refuse and they're going to also stay on the island and get left. And the third group, he says, are those who understand that this is a temporary place. I think that's what's death is so uncompromising and so unconditional and so uninvited. You know, one of my most difficult moments in my life, I went to a really low place and I'm, I'm probably going to write about this one day. I didn't share it with people. Got me into therapy is the death of my mother. I love my mother. Brothers and sisters, I, I used to call my mother every day. That's the kind of relationship I had with my mother. I miss her. There are times in my life where I just want to pick up the phone and call her, man. You know, because your mother is so central to your being. That's why the Quran mentions the mother more than the father. 
She's the um, right? She's our foundation, our essence. So there are even times now in my life where I'm like, you know what? Let me call moms. Oh, man, moms ain't here, man. And death does that, man. Death is powerful and it centers us. And the Quran says, The Quran refers to death as a musibah. And a musibah, it's hard to translate, but it's like a systemic trial that impacts everything. For us in the Muslim tradition, there's a few things we can learn from the death of Kobe, who Kobe was to many of us. And I know he wasn't free of concerns and contradictions. But first and foremost is what I appreciated from all of this is that Kobe was a unique person. He was able to marry not only talent, but drive. You know, oftentimes I've been around people who have incredible talent, but the talent becomes the alibi by which they excuse themselves from working hard. For him, he was that rare person where his talent stayed in front of him, not behind him. He kept seeing it in front of him. And that talent was able to paint the picture of who he could become if he worked harder. That's, an, that's something which is admirable. That's a quality that we should appreciate. That talent becomes the driving force, not the excuse. And at times when I look at my own spiritual life and my religious life, and when I was in Egypt, I used to, even though I was a diehard Celtics fan, loved KG, Paul Pierce, and Rondo, big baby. I would look at Kobe and say, you know, if Kobe has this kind of drive for his craft, why am I lazy when it comes to my religious practice? So I think that's something important, right? That all of us have certain talents that Allah has given us, mashallah. It's important that we never allow talent to become an excuse for laziness. Look at the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu who the most talented human being to walk the face of the earth. And all the prophets were the most talented. Who would say every day, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-kasal. Oh God, I seek refuge in you from laziness. And Allah warns the prophet at the very beginning of his prophecy. Like, don't allow the good you do to put you to sleep. Don't allow the good that you've done. Like, don't count, don't count that as something that can be used as a means to excuse you from responsibility. The opposite, the more the prophet learned, as the, the narration of his nephew Ibn Abbas says, the more the prophet learned the Quran, the more generous he became. So I'm not, of course, comparing Kobe Bryant to prophets, but there is this idea of talent being used to drive us to be better instead of it being used as an alibi or as an excuse. The other lesson that I took from, from Kobe and Kobe's demise is that this was an extremely talented person and death did not come to him in the way that I'm sure he imagined or any of us imagined. And that forced me to ask myself a very, very disturbing question and that was William or Suhaib how do you want to die how do you envision your death Imam al-Muhasibi 
Rahimahullah Ta'ala in a, a very beautiful book. Imam is like a preacher or a teacher for our non-Muslim brothers and sisters. He's one of the great, great early scholars who focused on Islamic spirituality. He says that you should visit your death every day. Man, that's tough, man. I don't know if I can do that. Visit your death every day. Zur, visit your death. When I began to think about how I wanted to die, admirably, I would love to die, you know, protesting, standing up for justice. I would love to die feeding my daughter. You know, I would love to die teaching. I would love to die in prostration and prayer. But then I started to compare how I wanted to die with how I'm living. And immediately I needed to start editing things. Let me ask you as you're listening to this broadcast, how do you want to die? One of the great scholars, he was a student of another great scholar of prophetic traditions named Imam Ahmed. One of his greatest students was asked on his deathbed, what is the one thing that you have done in this world that you have buried as a treasure that you hope you can open after your death when you meet God? And he said, I never hurt my wife's feelings. The people around us, people closest to us, how do we want to treat them? How do we want them to feel? at the moment of our death towards us. So death is the ultimate reminder. That's why Umar ibn Khattab, he used to wear a ring and it said, You know that death is a sufficient reminder that used to be on his ring, on his ring. And we know that Nas, he says, I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death, right? That the idea of not being alert is intrinsically related to forgetting death. So I want you to ask yourself, how do you imagine your death? And then reflect back on how you're living, how I'm living. I found some things there that made me uncomfortable and made me to realize that I need to improve myself. I think the last lesson that we take from this, and I say this because this is what perhaps impacted me the most out of those people's death is that a number of them, I believe, were with their children. 13-year-old girl died, as well as Kobe's daughter, Gigi. And we keep all these people in our thoughts and prayers, man, and their families. Was that I have a daughter that is a month older than Kobe, and I have a daughter that is a year older than Kobe's oldest. And I know it's not fair. Sometimes we selfishly read and live vicariously through others, and I would never want to do that with anyone. But being a girl dad and being a dad is amazing, man. Take advantage of the time that we still have to fix relationships with our spouses and with our children. The Prophet has said the best thing you can leave in life the best thing you can give your children is the gift of good character. Let us be models for them while we still have time. Make sure that we spend time with our kids. One time I was out with my oldest. I love my oldest daughter, man. That's my, that's my, 
That's, that's a very, very, very close friend to me. The, the, the Siddhartha is my wife, of course. Nothing comes in front of my wife. But I love my daughter. I have a very unique relationship with my oldest. We're very similar. She's very tall. You know, I try to get her in the WNBA, you know what I mean? But one time I visited her and uh, I wanted to go out and I said, you got to leave your phone at home because that's when, you know, young, young, young folks, man, they'd be on them phones. Right. But then I forgot. She said, well, are you going to leave your phone at home? And I was like, uh, mm, mm. see, our children are really reflections, not only of who we can be, because my son tends to look at me like a superhero. Right. Our children tend to look at us as though, hey, this is a reflection of what someone thinks you can be. That's the beauty of children. We see our potential in the pools of their gazes, right? But also they remind us of our inconsistencies in a very safe way. So let's take this time, man, to tighten up the family, put away the phone, spend some quality time together, develop what really matters, the love that we have amongst family is something that ideally um, should be a mix of good and bad, right? That's family. The families in the Quran were never perfect. I can't stand that when people say family should be perfect. We put so much undue pressure. But look at all of the families in the Quran from Adam to Joseph to Moses to Satan and Miriam to Jesus. You know, all of these people had problems with their families. Noah problems with his family. Prophet Muhammad, there's a chapter that talks about the problems his uncle gave him. Right? Family is very rarely perfect. That's what makes us family. right? Family teaches us how to love and teaches us how to hate and teaches us how to forgive. Teaches us how to heal. Teaches us how to trust or not trust. Family is, is dynamic. But one of the lessons I learned um, from this, this tragedy is that I need to do better. I need to be a better father, man. I need to give more time. I need to spend more quality time with my children. So I, I really wasn't planning even on doing a podcast um, just because I, I, I tend to do the podcast when I feel it's right. And I know that we're doing this 2020 series, but I felt that it's okay to let people mourn, to let people feel moved and and it's important that, you know, important people rock your life. I mean, that's that's how it is. And that we take some lessons from the drive and talent of Kobe, the contradictions that Kobe represented. We take lessons from that. We take lessons from family. We take lessons from our mortality. I wish each and every one of you peace. Uh, I hope that each and every one of you is able to heal and find meaning and purpose in your experiences in life. And remember, things take time. Nothing, you know, a painting doesn't happen overnight. Life doesn't happen overnight. Life is not microwaved. Life, uh, life is not microwaved. Life is baked. Thank you for listening to SwissCast. My apologies for just kind of ranting. And I, I pray that each and every one of you has a wonderful week. Inshallah, later this week we're going to have a special episode. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum.